0: Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, August 13th, and we're doing a news roundup on some interesting stories in the CG world. I'm your host Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Dan Klein with me in studio. Dan, what's up? Uh, oh, not too much. How are you? It's always a treat to have you at the office. <laughs> and
1: for those of you listening and not watching, Dylan is sitting like up on like a, a phone book, and he's already like six <laughs> inches taller than me, so I am literally looking up at Dylan Lewis here.
0: You make me sound like I'm Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress. <laughs> I am simply sitting on a stool. I like being a little higher up. It gives me good posture. I think it makes my voice a little more resonant. I don't know. It feels
1: like a power move to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I offered you a high stool, Dan. He did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm having you on today because we were talking about some stuff going on, specifically in the retail space. This is a space that you follow uh, particularly well, I will say. Um, (laughs) Why don't we kick off with our first story about JCPenney. This is a business that's been struggling for quite some time. We've seen news over the past week that they are now trying to work with creditors to arrange some debt swap arrangements.
1: So, for a long time, I was a believer. I truly felt Marvin Ellison, the former CEO, was doing all the right things. He was going into areas that Sears was abandoning. He was uh, adding toys when Toys R Us went out of business, really like smart moves. And then, maybe about a year ago, uh, when they were looking for his successor, I started looking, I, I started visiting JCPenney stores and looking at how they were executing things. And toys were in a clump on the floor and they weren't a good selection. Have, being someone who used to run a toy store, I think I can fairly say that. <laughs> it was almost like, what toys can you get the best terms on more so than. <laughs> and a lot of their merchandise was just like filled with whatever they can get. We joked about this earlier, but they literally have racks of the like cheap novelty suit that has dollar bills printed on it or the American flag. I, I don't see a big market for those.
0: No, I'm not buying that every day. So. so
1: you know, they're not connecting. The moves that seemed like they were going to work like appliances, uh, Jill Saltow, the new CEO, immediately got rid of. It's, uh, I get it. It's a very cash-intensive business. She believes more in apparel for the turnaround. I, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. They have $4 billion in long-term debt and only $1.7 billion in what they call liquidity. But that is largely a revolving credit line. They they have under two hundred million in cash. Is that that accurate to say? Yeah,
0: that's that's I think it's
1: one seventy. So they report on Thursday. They lost over a hundred million dollars in the first quarter or the last quarter. It is very likely that they will have eaten up a lot of their available cash. And if I'm a vendor and you're going to place an order for me, I am not. Sending you that order if you don't have the cash on hand. I'm not taking it based on you having a credit line when there's media reports about how much trouble you're in. So what they're trying to do, and they've brought in a restructuring firm to help them do this, is get some more credit, extend the terms of their deal, push off their their balloon payment. So 2023, which is really far away. If you actually are doing well, it's not, you know, there should be plenty of time to pay that bill. But the reality is they are trying to get ahead of the stories that started happening with Sears of,
0: vendors aren't going to sell to us. And that's part of the death spiral, right? is You wind up in a situation where you have a very large debt burden, people start getting worried about whether they're going to get paid, and your inventory isn't nearly as attractive as it would be if vendors trusted
1: you. Yeah, and this is is anecdotal, but I have been to many JCPenney. I am a JCPenney customer. This shirt isn't from JCPenney, but I have many similar ones like it that are. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you go to JCPenney and you're trying to buy shoes and they only have the oddball sizes, or you need something simple, like I want a Star Wars t-shirt, and you have 15 different Star Wars t-shirts, and you're like, wait a minute, you only have small? <laughs> like, like That's a sign of the inventory being put on shelves just to fill space and look filled. And honestly, as someone who's been in retail, there were times of year, like in February at the toy store, A lot of our inventory, we had no intention of ever selling it. We knew we weren't going to sell anything again until April, so we were pushing off some of our expense in sort of faking our inventory. The problem is JCPenney at Christmas time doesn't look so good. And yeah, it becomes a death spiral. You go to JCPenney to buy something specific. You get there and they don't have it. And nobody goes, hey, I wanted a Star Wars t-shirt. You don't have that,
0: I'll buy a sweater. (laughs) <laughs> and it's and it's not that this business isn't committed to inventory because if you look at their current assets, uh, I think all told they have about three billion in current assets. I think two point five billion there eaten up in inventory in some phase or another. So a lot of the money they're tied up, uh, they have tied up right now, is in physical goods they're trying to sell. It's just not the right stuff.
1: Right, and the problem is one. I don't believe their issue is a right stuff problem. Yes, you need the right inventory. And Jill Salto may be correct when she says they need higher-end women's apparel and they need to go with what worked in the past, and you know, they just partnered with Shaq on a line for big and tall guys. Like, those might be all the correct moves, but if you don't have the money — and they do not — to revamp how you do business, meaning full omni-channel, I can more or less think what I want from JCPenney and either pick it up in the store. I'm teasing when I say think, but like type it in the app, know if I can get it delivered in the store. They are not set up to ship most orders direct from stores, which leads to inefficiency. You look online, the JCPenney down the street, I don't know if there's a JCPenney down the street here. But there is. <laughs> the J.C. Penny down the street has it but they send it to you from a warehouse in Sheboygan and that's very inefficient. They don't have the money. They've talked about sort of revamping some of their checkout process, which is awful. It's a very old-school department store checkout where like the men's section has a checkout, but you can never tell if someone's working there. There's also a general checkout, but it, it's it's built around like loss prevention, not convenience. So They can't afford to redo the layout of all their stores. They should be figuring out how to offload expense in their stores, things like store within a store, which didn't quite work for Sears, but has worked very well for Best Buy, has worked very well for even Walmart, has made a lot of money doing that.
0: And I don't see any of those moves being made. One of the other major issues when you start looking at a business that is circling the drain, maybe it's fair to say that here, is um, when you have a large looming debt load, you have these interest payments that come due. And I think for the last couple quarters, it's been about $70 million for JCPenney. Um, they have some people that they've brought on to help them manage their debt better. But that becomes a pretty big burden to carry, especially for a business that's lost, I think, $300 million over the last 12 months.
1: And when you're in a situation where the people who've loaned you the money start to become worried about your ability to pay the money back, they're not generally willing to be like, let's cut the interest rate. Let's let's give you six months where you don't have to pay interest. This isn't a mortgage. Like This this isn't a situation where, like, yeah, you lost your job, but then got, got a new job that pays a little more, so they'll let you catch up. There's nothing about the JCPenney business. There is no move Jill Saltow can make to turn this around. And I feel bad saying that. I like this company. I like this brand. I want it to survive. It's bad for malls for JCPenney to go away. But think about how you shop. It's primarily digital first, even if you're going to go to a store. And their app is behind the times. Their efficiency is behind the times. A lot of what they sell is sold by Amazon or Target or like. And even the things they don't, like a suit, you're going to go to a store to buy a suit. J.C. Penney's, maybe some of them do, but all the ones I've been in don't have a tailor. The Macy's, that's down the mall corridor, which might cost a little more, but sell you a suit that isn't labeled to Michael Strahan. And no offense against Michael Strahan, but I'd prefer a suit designer than a football player. <laughs> have his name have his name on my suit. You don't
0: want the linebacker cut, Dan? <laughs> I, I, I could probably wear the linebacker <laughs> cut.
1: <laughs> it, it just comes down to we've seen this before where if you don't have assets if you you know sears sold off a ton of assets trying things that didn't work jc sadly hasn't doesn't have anything to sell off or not much that i can see so they're in a situation where unless someone comes in and takes them private and says i see value in the store base i see value in the brand name i'm going to invest let me just guess 4 billion dollars in it that all they can do is extend the debt cycle and As a creditor, I don't know why you – maybe you get, get a little more blood out of the stone by doing that, but maybe there's some assets you can claim at the end of this. I feel like the game is already over and they're still trying to convince us it isn't.
0: Yeah, if you look at the share price over the last, I don't know, 12 months or so, it is not the chart you want to see. It is down and to the right. We usually like to see up and to the right. And recently, it has gotten to the point where it is below $1. And that's where things start to get problematic for companies that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange.
1: Yeah, so they got a delisting warning. And essentially, when that happens, you have six months to get your share price over $1 for up period of time. I don't remember the exact period of time. But to do that, there's a few levers you can pull. You can have a good quarter, (laughs) and people might go, ooh, this stock is more valuable than we thought it was. We'll call that the organic route. That doesn't take that much, because if you remember with Sears, Sears, maybe 11 out of 12 quarters for three years to diminishing returns, would deliver an upbeat press conference. It's working, we're turning it around, even though all these numbers are terrible. Our last three weeks of the quarter beat last year, like, they'd find whatever way it was to spin. You know, they, Tuesday's number one hit drama. It's like wait, that's the only drama on Tuesdays and it's not getting any viewers? Like that's kind of how but the stock in the short term, sometimes for days, sometimes just for hours, would spike because people only read the beginning of the earnings release. And Eddie Lampert, the former CEO of Sears, now owner of Sears, was brilliant at sort of spinning bad numbers good while meeting the legal requirements of reporting bad numbers. JCPenney has not been as aggressive in doing that, but they could very well come out this quarter and say, "Hey, yeah, like we're really seeing big numbers in women's apparel, and that's what we're moving into more. So we expect you know to be profitable six months from now, and the stock might bump above a dollar, which would be a really big bump." At, at this I think point. It's at sixty cents yeah. a share, or something that, like that, right now.
0: But it's not going to sustain it. Yeah, and so you need to go a second route when with, you're with, not getting the results, which is a reverse split. Yeah. And
1: a reverse split essentially says I have one share of stock worth worth 60 cents. Now I own one tenth of a share of stock. They can pick whatever number they want in, in terms of one for 10, one for 15, what a one for twelve and a half if you really <laughs> wanted to. But it takes the amount of shares down so it makes what's left more valuable, or at least a higher dollar amount. They're actually the same. But What happens with that is there's a psychological effect. It's very discouraging. It's like you know, it's it's like you come home and you say you're you're not married. I am. You say to your wife, "Good news. We have to buy a much smaller house." (laughs) But yeah, there's no positive. Yeah, there's no positive. Yeah,
0: and and anyone that's familiar with stock splits, usually the opposite is happening, right? right? And so you are, and and that's
1: the same thing hmm. where there's no actual new value created, but it's exciting and it tends to send a stock up. This A a reverse split tends to be a move that investors perceived as a death throw. And I don't know what the percentages are, but it often is a death throw.
0: Yeah, it's one of those signs I see and say, this is probably a business that's struggling, particularly if they're doing it to maintain their listing status. Uh, It seems like that might be a route that JCPenney has to go down at some point in the next six months.
1: Yeah, I mean, the interesting piece is you can wait until very late in the game. Um, So, But we now have two years of JCPenney planning for Black Friday so they can get a piece of the pie, and the last two years, it seemed really hopeful. Like There'll be news stories like, there's lines at JCPenney. And it's like, there's lines everywhere. (laughs) Did people buy stuff? Or did they get lured in by JCPenney had a really good deal on something? And yes, they made a lot of transactions. But the people making those transactions and buying whatever, the $8 polo was only $6 and they bought two of them. It's not needle moving. And the overall sales numbers will be disappointing. And I can't imagine there's
0: anything JCPenney could do this Black Friday to change that. We'll see what the most recent quarter's results look like later this week. Um, but I think you and I are both a little skeptical of the turnaround story that's being pitched here.
1: It, it is because when you know when you look at Best Buy or Macy's, two companies that, you know, Best Buy to a greater extent has already completed a turnaround they had assets. They identified that they needed to change their business before their business was in significant trouble or at the very early stages. And they they laid out a clear plan with bullet points. You know, Renew Blue literally laid out everything they were going to do and store within a store and here's how we're going to cut expenses and here's how we're going to raise this and digital and JCPenney kind of has like a vague outline of like uh, merchandise. <laughs> like, and I I'm I'm not being fair cuz there's other points to their plan, yeah. but it feels very paper thin compared to what the success stories did, and even if they came out and said this is everything we need to do and they were dead on right, who's going to pay for it? Yeah.
0: All right, the other company that we want to talk about today is Nike. A couple news items coming out about them. I think one of the more interesting ones is that they're launching a kids shoes subscription service. Dan, what are the details there? So
1: This is a really interesting idea. When they say kid shoes, they really mean little kids, like up to about 10 years old. And they're selling this as the idea is to take stress out from parents. Now, I actually found that the sneaker stress happens a little later when, when like, what sneaker you wear is cool, and I've had the fight with my son a hundred times that you, I'm not buying you $200 sneakers until your feet stop growing.
0: You're in a particularly unique position, though, because you have a sneakerhead 15-year-old, I, I right? do. And, and he's, he's actually moved away from that, but he's very
1: conscious of what, like, other kids are wearing or sort of what the cool kid sneaker is, um, so... You we know, we've strategized by like I make him ask for gift cards, you know, for his birthday, and like, you know, and e- but even then, I'm not letting him spend two hundred dollars. Like, it's too much. But this is a subscription program, so you can join for twenty a month, thirty a month, fifty a month, and your child can literally get a new pair of sneakers three times a year, a new pair of sneakers four or twelve. I don't know what kid needs twelve <laughs> new because little kids aren't collecting sneakers. There's no value in you know those small sizes. Sneakers are dramatically cheaper for little kids. So even the trendy ones, when they start to get to be eight, nine, or ten, there is a huge price break on the trendiest sneakers. So parents, depending what they pick, would save money with this or would break even. But the hardest part, and it's and what's what Nike is trying to take out of it, is sizing. And they actually send you a, a magnetic sizing chart that can go in the fridge. So you're a kid. And I think this is a prototype. You know, we, we've read about that they might do this for marathon runners who go through sneakers, you know, very quickly. I think this makes sense for adults. Yeah, like, go ahead. If you could would you pay you're not a sneakerhead. I don't no. think. All the sneakerheads I know, if I said to them you're you're going to pay a premium, you're going to pay 25% more. But you are going to get access to things that you used to have to wait in line for four times a year. And you're going to get a new pair of sneakers and you're going to have a range to pick from every month that will also, you'll have them a week before they're in stores. That's a home run. And this is Nike worrying about retail and saying we have to have a direct relationship with our consumers because even places we sell are either seeing lower traffic. Or we've talked about Dick Sporting Goods, which is leaning more on its own owned and operated brands. Like, you know, they've cut back on their Under Armour supply. Maybe they'll cut back on their Nike sneaker supply. And,
0: that doesn't matter if nike's communicating directly i think whether we're talking about the kids market here the marathon market maybe some ultra premium sneakerhead type service down the road what we're really looking at is convenience and getting people into the regular purchasing decision of buying nike
1: yeah and and you know i i've, I've got to be honest so i go through sneakers really hard cuz i walk a lot So every three or four months, I go to the New Balance outlet and buy new sneakers. And this time I went to like the fancy mall running store and got like fitted for like nice and they're silly looking because the right ones were not the best color. Um, But if I could say, hey, this is the New Balance I wear, it's comfortable, I need a new one every four months, and boy, I'd like to have them not be purple. Um, could I get black, please? <laughs> and I could do that as a subscription service where I didn't have to go to the mall. That would be fabulous.
0: I think Nike is doing something here where they are kind of latching on to a concept that a lot of other retailers have been trying to push recently in getting that direct consumer relationship. You know, I am a huge fan of RX bars. I don't know if you know those, Ken. I do. Yeah, so, so I love them. They're like, you know, the ingredients are printed on there. It's a very, like, millennial-ish kind of, <laughs> you know, granola bar brand. But um, I order them through their site. Because you get bulk discounts and then stuff like that, and uh, what I've noticed recently is they have focused on okay, you can buy this for twenty five ninety nine, this pack of twelve, or you can buy it on a thirty day re up and get a five percent discount. And they are not the only ones that are doing yeah, that.
1: Yeah, I mean Amazon does that. And the problem with Amazon is their programs not flexible. And I think I've told you this story before, but I take Prevacid for acid reflux. It's an over-the-counter medicine. For some reason, it's sold in either one-week supplies or three-week supplies. <laughs> and Amazon, whenever I buy the three-week supply, says, do you want to save 5% and subscribe? And I say, yes, but then I'd only have three weeks and i need a month <laughs> and there's no way to fix it. So, there are, are holes in it. But I am a Dollar Shave Club subscriber. And I used to buy the very expensive Razor Company blades. I won't disparage the Razor <laughs> Company. They are very involved. You're a true New Englander. They are very involved with the football <laughs> team I, I support. Uh, but it was an astronomical amount of money for four blades. I ordered Dollar Shave Club. The blades are and the razors are not quite as nice. I would say it's like 98% as much as I like the old ones but they show up every month. And then a few months again, it's four, so it's one a week, which is what I use. And every now and then, you can go into their system and be like, I need a new handle. I want an extra four, because I want to put them in my travel bag. And a few months ago, and this is cost management on them, they came back to me and said, hey, would you mind if we just sent you your once a month, once a quarter, and I went. I'll only have to go get the mail at the front desk. One, yeah, like that's great. Like that works for me too. So this kind of thing is, and that's a relationship that I won't change. Like I, I buy Harry's sometimes when I forgot my razor, and like that's what's in my travel bag because they sell it at Target. But I'm not going to switch from Dollar Shave Club to Harry's. They already have my info. They have it's that's a lifetime relationship as
0: far as I'm concerned. And that's the beauty of it. I think anyone that's seen the videos of our podcast know that I am not someone who buys a lot of razors, <laughs> but but I think that that's exactly what these businesses want. You know, if you're in something that is a repeated consumer purchase, especially something like razors or toothpaste or, you know, the snacks that you have on a regular basis, they're part of your routine. They want that to be as mindless as possible so that it just shows up and it's there.
1: And if they're smart, they build a relationship with you. Um, Dollar Shave Club does a really nice newsletter. It has really fun stories. And I'm not saying I wouldn't quit just to keep getting the newsletter, but there are some businesses where, like, if Nike sells a high-end sneaker concierge line, they should have a person who's member services, who talks to you, who builds a relationship, who, you know, if you leave calls you up and is like, hey, Dylan, like what what did we do something wrong? Like and, and entices you back. Uh, and that's that's where these things are going. And in my mind, I want to automate as much of my life as possible. I live in a building. It's difficult to bring things in and out. My parking space is not on the same floor as where I live. So I get water delivered. It's automatic. They call me, and I and I, if I'm not home, I tell them to leave it outside, and I've left the empties outside the door, so I have to lug it in. But that's a lot better than have to lug it in from the curb. Kitty litter, all the heavy things in my life, I try to make sure I get automated. Sneakers, clothes, I think most people would do that.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to talk about this Nike story in particular because while I do think it's interesting for Nike, I think it is a representation of what we're seeing more and more in retail. And that is the automaticization, the automation, <laughs> um, the subscriptionification. It's, it's the dollar purposes. shave
1: club of things that work like dollar shave club. Like right. I've always been surprised that there's no monthly toilet paper delivery service. Because it's bulky, it's not a fun thing to pick up. Like it just kind of makes shopping difficult. It fills up a lot of your cart. You probably can estimate how much you're going to need in a month. Like why can't that just show up somewhere? One of our listeners, Dan, (laughs) just started a business (laughs) based on your idea. You know the the toothbrush one that's in you know sold in Target now. I wasn't sure if we were going to mention the brand name. I'll throw the brand. They they are a sometimes podcast advertiser. (laughs) Um, It's brilliant. You. It's telling you when you need to replace your toothbrush. It's just showing up. Because I would say at some point in life, you've overused a toothbrush. Most certainly. Or underused a toothbrush. You know, So I know that I bought 24 toothbrushes when I moved from Costco. And I haven't gone through them all because I've supplemented. And I've lived where I live for three years. But I've supplemented them by the free dentist ones or forgetting I had them and buying them. I don't want to have to think about this stuff. And I think a lot of the retail world is moving to that. Target is engineering some of its business around, even if they're not delivering it to, the convenience of having things easy, grab-and-go in those sections. And I think retail convenience is something that's going to be, like, the next 10 years, a big piece of the story.
0: The other Nike story that we wanted to talk about kind of hits on a similar theme, where we are looking at the direct-to-consumer and ease-of-use side of retail.
1: I predicted this being a 100% common 10 years ago, and it's barely being used.
0: Is there public record of that, Dan? Uh,
1: well, my dad could probably talk to you about <laughs> it because I wanted to do it at the family ladder company. So, Nike is using RFID to track inventory. And what that means is they can pull up and see exactly where each piece of, each sh- set of shoes has moved. And that allows them to say, okay, this store has inventory it's not going to sell, so we can ship it to another store. We can fulfill a digital order from that store. This store isn't going to get its next shipment before it sells out of that size. And they've bought a couple of Technology companies to sort of help them process that data, but they're getting into a situation where we're using AI and other techniques and and real-time data. They're going to be able to make better predictions about what inventory goes in what stores. They might figure out that for some odd reason, the Nike outlet in, in, in West Palm Beach maybe they sell more size 12s and maybe they go through running sneakers faster because it's hot and shoes wear out. In, in a different pattern. Whatever it is, they're they're going to know so much more. And I truly thought that this would be part of every Non-cheap retail product because it makes so much sense. Like we track real-time data on on the website. Like why wouldn't retailers want to know?
0: Yeah, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Um, and this move, this focus, comes by way of an acquisition. They they bought Select. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. C E L E C T. Uh, it's a predictive analytics firm founded by two MIT professors, I believe. Um, and the focus here is making sure we can match inventory to the consumer needs and that the products are in the right place at the right time.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of taking omnichannel to the next level. um, Because Amazon has talked a lot about how they can predict that somebody's going to order the RX bars you talked about, a spare razor and a deodorant, all in the same package on Tuesday. They don't know who it is, but they know that's going to happen, so they can package that up and not have to wait for the order to come in. This is going to give Nike the ability to match its inventory to where demand is. And as things change, maybe the guy who comes in and buys 12 pairs of sneakers uh, for every new release to resell them on eBay, maybe he gets sick that week and he doesn't come in. Well, they can then fulfill a digital order using those sneakers that didn't sell, because they will know statistically, if it doesn't sell by the third day, these collectible sneakers won't sell. And that happens. So, at the outlet store, people hide sneakers. And they... Usually, what happens is they hide them because they're going to come back, but they never come back because most of those exclus- exclusives, all the demand, it's like a movie; it's pent up for the beginning, and then it becomes much smaller unless you
0: know the occasional thing. Crosses to mainstream, but that's not that common. The way that I look at this focus on a retail perspective is almost like if you were looking at um, a beehive or an ant colony as a human, <laughs> and you you have a sense of where all the ants are at any one point. You can see the flows of everything, hopefully in real time, and and I imagine that leads to much better decisions. Uh, my understanding is that this acquisition select was not a particularly large one. No, it wasn't. I was looking at their Crunchbase uh, fundraising uh, history, and I think they raised like twenty two million dollars over the last six years. So and- it couldn't have been an expensive. The
1: founders are still active MIT professors, so I think their goal was to prove concept and then sell. And I don't know what percentage of them of it they owned, but I'm guessing this was a very nice payday. You know, it's very expensive to live in Cambridge. You probably need a couple extra million if you're an <laughs> MIT professor. Uh, but I th- we're going to see more of this, and we might see if Nike makes this work, just like Starbucks has spun off a technology arm, and they're going to develop things that they may license to other retailers this could be something that nike licensed to its retail partners or or to other sneaker companies or to unrelated companies like no company is what it is anymore like if you're a certain level of company you're a technology company and this is you know admitting nike probably shouldn't build from scratch they should find the expertise and they've bought other companies in this space before. So, this just sort of builds on what they've do what they been doing, and now we're seeing real-world application for it.
0: Yeah. And, and for me, it also is a major point for them in owning more of the consumer relationship and relying a little bit less on retail middlemen to handle their fulfillment. Um, it seems like it's going to be focused on Nike-owned stores, and then obviously the subscription thing is going to be focused on a direct relationship with consumers. We've talked so much about the very difficult relationship that apparel makers or you know consumer products makers have with the likes of Amazon because or Walmart because those are by nature difficult relationships you're kind of competing you're kind of friends it's it's tough and, and Nike's
1: even more complicated because i don't know how they term it internally but there are tiers of what you can sell so like kohl's gets like mostly lower end nikes or things that didn't sell or things that are like off model Maybe Foot Locker gets certain exclusives and Champs gets other exclusives. And I'm sure if I was a sneakerhead, I would know exactly what the cadence and the rules for this are. But the sneaker selection in the mall between four different stores that sell Nike can be very, very different. And there's a lot of stock models that are sort of at every place. But it's not like a new iPhone comes out and you can line up at any store that's an Apple partner and they will have it. A new Set of, I don't know, you know, a new pair of Jordans comes out that's a very limited edition. Maybe it's only at Footlockers of a certain mall level. Like, it's very hard to track. And if Nike starts to take some of that back for themselves, well, Footlocker might decide, like, ooh, maybe we're going to become more of an Adidas seller. Like, so these are very perilous relationships. I'll liken it to like the cable company carriage deals where, like, Yes, we carry HBO, but HBO is also a competitor like and it's very tricky. So I think you might see some availability changing. Uh, you know, we talked about Dick's before, but maybe Foot Locker says like, you know what? We have Foot Locker kids. You're going after us with this. Like, we're not going to feature you as much. This is a big shakeout. And I think there's a lot of shoes left to fall.
0: And we highlight these moves from Nike because while a lot of apparel companies have struggled, you know, tastes change pretty dramatically (laughs) in a short period of time. Nike has endured and been a pretty solid performer in the retail space over the last couple of years. If they're investing in these spaces, obviously you want to see other apparel companies, other retail businesses making the same investments because they've been doing it. So you're
1: saying I shouldn't be wearing Crocs when we hang out later?
0: (laughs) You know what? Crocs have their place. It's in the kitchen if you're working a job that you are on your feet for hours and hours and hours. No.
1: To to, to answer you credibly, it's a lot like what we talked about with JCPenney. You have to solve the problem before it's a problem. And it is never a bad thing, and and Motley Fool as a company has a one-on-one relationship with with a lot of people. Having a one-on-one relationship, I I responded yesterday on Twitter to some listeners. Well, is that listener going to be more likely to listen? Of course, because it's a friend now, like it's someone who knows me. It's I've. Communicate with so if if Nike messaged me and said, "Hey, it's Joe from Nike. Like, we've got a new shoe for uh, middle-aged guys that's more supportive, and boy, we think that's a better fit for you than the one you're stuffing your foot into now." That'd be great, (laughs) And, and it works, you know. If you told me, "Hey, listen to a podcast," that would mean more than like somebody on social media who I don't know saying, "Listen to a podcast." This is building that interpersonal relationship, and it takes the store out of it at some
0: point. Love that. Let's wrap it there, Dan. Thanks for hopping on today's show. That went a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, like like Dan said, let's build that relationship. You can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or you can catch some of the videos from the podcast on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For Dan Klein, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on!